So you have a double blessing today. Um, unmerited, but you will receive this blessing despite of that. <laughs> Two sermons. One is from our Superior General, Father Davide Pagliarani. Um, I would just read to you his letter concerning the motu proprio, Pope Francis, um, that places very serious restrictions on the traditional Mass, and then, of course, give my own sermon that I promised that I would give you um, for today. So without further ado, I will just read to you um, this letter of the Superior General, then read you the Epistle and the Gospel, and then preach the sermon, my sermon. Dear members and friends of the Priestly Society of St. Pius X, the motu proprio Traditionis Custodes and the letter that accompanied it have caused a profound upheaval in the so-called traditionalist movement. We can point out quite logically that the era of the hermeneutics of continuity with its equivocations, illusions, and impossible efforts is radically over, swept aside with the wave of a hand. These clear-cut measures do not direct directly affect the Society of St. Pius X. However, they must be an occasion for us to reflect deeply on the situation. To do so, it is necessary to step back and ask ourselves a question that is both old and new. Why is the Tridentine Mass still the apple of discord after 50 years? First of all, we must remember that the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the continuation in time of the most bitter struggle that has ever existed, the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. This combat culminated at Calvary in the triumph of our blessed Lord. It was for this struggle and it was for this victory that he became incarnate. Since our Lord's victory was through the cross and through his precious blood, it is understandable that its perpetuation will also be marked by conflicts and contradictions. Every Catholic is called to this combat. Our Lord reminded us of this when he said that he came to bring the sword upon the earth. It is not surprising that the Mass, which perfectly expresses our Lord's definitive victory over sin through his atoning sacrifice, is itself a sign of contradiction. But why has the Mass become a sign of contradiction within the Church itself? The answer is simple and increasingly clear. After 50 years, the various elements that confirm the answer have become obvious to all well-informed Catholics, the Tridentine Mass expresses and conveys a conception of Christian life and consequently a conception of the Catholic Church that is absolutely incompatible with the ecclesiology that emerged from the Second Vatican Council. The problem is not simply liturgical, aesthetic, or purely technical. The problem is simultaneously doctrinal, moral, spiritual, ecclesiological, and liturgical. In a nutshell... It is a problem that affects all aspects of the church's life without exception. It is a question of faith. On the one side is the mass of all times. It is the standard of a church that defies the world and is certain of victory, for its battle is nothing less than the continuation of the battle that our Lord waged to destroy sin and to destroy the kingdom of Satan. It is by the mass and through the mass that our Lord enlists Catholic souls into his ranks, by sharing with them both his cross and his victory. From all this follows a fundamentally militant conception of Christian life that is characterized by two elements, a spirit of sacrifice and an unwavering supernatural hope. On the other side stands the Mass of Paul VI. 
It is an authentic expression of a church that wants to live in harmony with the world and that lends an ear to the world's demands. It represents a church that in the final analysis no longer needs to fight against the world because it no longer has anything to reproach the world. Here is a church that no longer has anything to teach the world because it listens to the powers of the world. It is a church that no longer needs the sacrifice of our Lord because having lost the notion of sin, it no longer has anything for which to atone. Here is a church that no longer has the mission of restoring the universal kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ because it wants to make its contribution to the creation on this earth of a better world that is freer, more egalitarian, and more eco-responsible, and all this with purely human means. This humanist mission that the men of the church have given themselves must necessarily be matched by a liturgy that is equally humanist and emptied of any notion of sacredness. This battle that has been waged for the past 50 years, which has just seen a highly significant event on July 16th, is not a simple war between two rights. It is indeed a war between two different and opposing conceptions of the Catholic Church and of Christian life, conceptions that are absolutely irreducible and incompatible with each other. In paraphrasing St. Augustine, one could say that the two masses have built two cities. The mass of all times has built a Christian city, and the new mass seeks to build a humanist and secular city. Since Almighty God has allowed all this, it is certainly for a greater good. Firstly, for ourselves, who have the undeserved good fortune of knowing the Tridentine Mass and who can benefit from it. We possess a treasure with a value we do not always appreciate and which we perhaps preserve too much out of simple habit. When something precious is attacked or scorned, we begin to appreciate better its true value. May this shock, provoked by the harshness of the official text of July 16th, serve to renew, deepen, and rediscover our attachment to the Tridentine Mass. This Mass, our Mass, must really be for us like the pearl of great price in the Gospel, for which we are ready to renounce everything, for which we are ready to sell everything. He who is not prepared to shed his blood for this Mass is not worthy to celebrate it. He who is not prepared to give up everything to protect it is not worthy to attend it. This should be our first reaction to these events that have just shaken the Catholic Church. Our reaction as Catholic priest and as Catholic laity must be profound and more far-reaching than all those feeble and sometimes hopeless commentaries. Our Blessed Lord certainly has another objective in mind in allowing this new attack on the Tridentine Mass. No one can doubt that in recent years many priests and faithful have discovered this Mass and that through it they have encountered a new spiritual and moral horizon which has opened the door to the sanctification of their souls. The latest measures taken against the Mass will force those souls to draw all the consequences of what they have discovered. They must now choose, with all the elements of discernment that are at their disposal, what is necessary for every well-informed Catholic conscience. Many souls will find themselves faced with an important choice that will affect their faith because, and let us say it once more, the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the supreme expression of a doctrinal and moral universe. It is therefore a question of choosing the Catholic faith in its entirety and through it choosing our Lord Jesus Christ with his cross, his sacrifice, 
and his universal kingship. It is a matter of choosing his precious blood, of imitating the crucified one, and of following him to the end by a complete, rigorous, and coherent fidelity. The Society of St. Pius X has the duty to assist all those souls who are currently in dismay and are confused. Firstly, we have the duty to offer them the certitude that the Tridentine Mass can never disappear from the face of the earth. This is an absolutely necessary sign of hope. Moreover, each of us, whether priest or faithful, must extend a warm helping hand to them, for he who has no desire to share the riches he enjoys is, in all truth, unworthy of possessing them. Only in this way will we truly love souls and show our love for the Church. For every soul that we win to our blessed Lord's cross and to the immense love that he has manifested through his sacrifice will be a soul truly one to his Church and to the charity that animates his Church, which must be ours, especially at this present time. It is to Our Lady of Sorrows that we entrust these intentions. It is to her that we address our prayers, since no one has penetrated more deeply than Our Blessed Lady the mystery of the sacrifice of Our Lord Jesus Christ and of His victory on the cross. There was no one greater than Mary who has been so int intimately associated with His sufferings and His triumph. It is in her hands that Our Blessed Lord has placed the whole Catholic Church. It is therefore to her that the most precious thing in the Catholic Church has been entrusted the testament of our Lord Jesus Christ, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Menzingen, July 22, 2021, Don Davide Pagliarani, Superior General of the Society of St. Pius X. So we find copies of this letter in the vestibule by the bulletin. And now for the epistle of this ninth Sunday after Pentecost, taken from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Brethren, let us not covet evil things, as they also coveted. Neither become you idolaters, as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed fornication, and there fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them tempted and perished by the serpents. Neither do you murmur, as some of them murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happen to them in figure, and they are written for our correction, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, he that thinks himself to stand, let him take heed, lest he fall. Let no temptation take hold on you, but such as is human. And God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will make also with temptation issue, that you may be able to bear it. Please stand for the gospel. The Gospel is taken from the 19th chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke. At that time, when Jesus drew near Jerusalem, seeing the city, he wept over it, saying, If thou also hadst known, and that in this thy day, the things that are to thy peace, but now they are hidden from thy eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, and thy enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and straighten thee on every side, and beat thee flat to the ground, and thy children who are in thee, and they shall not leave in thee a stone upon a stone, because thou hast not known the time of thy visitation. And entering into the temple, he began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying to them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Please be seated. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear Reverend Father, dear faithful, slavery to a creature is addiction. Slavery to God is true freedom. When you are enslaved to a creature, it involves the shutting down of your real self because your intellect is no longer able to think and your will is no longer able to choose. When you are enslaved to God, completely dedicated to God, what happens is your animal self is subjected and suppressed so that your intellect and your will are the most free to choose what is for your good. When you subject yourself to God, you're following what's reasonable and you're making a free choice. When you enslave yourself, on the other hand, to a creature, you're doing something very unreasonable and you're subjecting your free will to the tyranny of your passions. A person who is in a state of addiction has reached a point where his intellect and will are held in bondage to his passions to such a degree that the mind and the free will are not able to function. They cannot operate anymore when the person is in, in the presence of the object of his addiction. St. Paul very powerfully describes this supreme battle that every single one of you have in this life between your lower nature, your passions, your emotions, your body, your flesh, and your higher nature, your soul, your mind, your free will, and your Catholic faith. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 7. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I work, I do not understand. For I do not that good which I will, but the evil which I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I will not, I consent to the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that there dwells not in me, that is to say, in my flesh, that which is good. For to will is present with me, but to accomplish that which is good, I do not find. For the good which I will, I do not, and the evil which I will not, that I do. My mind knows the good, my will wants the good, but I don't do it. Because there's another power in me, my flesh, that wants something else. And it's so powerful that it pushes me to do what I know is not good and which I don't really want deep down. But I am powerless if I've given myself over to my passions. As I say, this is the great battle of our lives. Whether we will live according to our higher selves, our souls, or we will live according to our animal self, our body. And so today I'm going to talk to you about addiction and I want to cover three things in regards to addiction. First of all, why it is that you are truly free when you're serving God and you're truly a slave when you're serving your flesh. Secondly, the process by which a person becomes addicted. And thirdly, the way out of addiction. So, first of all, we have to understand that our Lord Jesus Christ calls you to freedom. He came on this earth to give you freedom over your lower nature such that you have free choice in order to determine yourself to the good. While the call of Satan is a call to true slavery, 
by submitting yourself to a creature. And you're going to make one of those two choices in your life. You will either, through your good choices, become like unto an angel for all eternity. Or you will become, through your slavery to the flesh, like unto a demon for all eternity in hell. One of the most famous things that uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the famous Russian author, wrote was in his book, The Brother Karamazov. And there's this interview between what he calls the Grand Inquisitor and our Lord. The Grand Inquisitor is judging our Lord Jesus Christ and reproaching our Lord Jesus Christ and the way that he deals with us and what he invites us to as creatures, his modus operandi. He says to our Lord, Thou didst crave for free love and not the base raptures of the slave before the might that has overawed him forever. But thou didst think too highly of men therein, for they are slaves, of course, though rebellious by nature. You want free love from those who serve you. You don't want slaves. But that's not the way you should operate. You should operate like the devil does, who tries to enslave people and so have power over them. Because there are two ways in which you can capture somebody, two ways in which you can draw somebody to yourself. The first way is that way of our Lord. It is the way of love. You keep someone with their freedom. You preserve their freedom. You want them to voluntarily choose to come to you. Our Lord does this in the fact that he has you serve him not by making you rich, bribing you, giving you empty pleasures. He has you serve him by bearing suffering for him, by bearing the cross in this life, by loving him even when it's difficult, by proving yourself to him through sacrificial love. This is what he invites you to do. What I'm saying is, if you do that, you will do it with a freely voluntary intention. No one will embrace suffering except through his free will. You can have suffering imposed upon you, but if you are pursuing a supernatural goal, something that is not of this earth, something that does not involve pleasures, and it involves difficulty, you will definitely be doing it with full consciousness of what you are, you are doing. You will be doing it voluntarily. That is the way that our Lord wants to bring us to him. And that's the only way. That's why serving our Lord is true freedom. The devil, though, he wants to enslave us by his power, through sensuality, through that immediate gratification, through all these bribes and all these pleasures that he gives us, and which later on end up destroying us. It's very nice up front, and then later on down the road, it's absolutely disastrous. He wants to have total control over you, and so he overwhelms you with sensual thrills, with pleasure, wealth, fame, and glory. Remember the, the temptations to our Lord. Why don't you just turn these stones to bread? Get immediate gratification. You hungry? Immediately gratify yourself. Look at the, the kingdoms of the world. Look at them all, all the power. I'll give them to you. All you have to do is just worship me. That's it. I'll give you all this, all of these things. We have to be so clear about these two ways in which Satan 
and our Lord operate upon us and the consequences for you. Do you want to be a slave or do you want to be free? Following our Lord is true freedom. Following the devil is slavery. Why? Because those things that the Satan offers you, to the degree that you indulge yourself in them, what's going to happen? Your passions are going to be inflamed. You're going to be attracted by, by these thrills, by these pleasures. You're going to immerse yourself in them. And over time, you're going to become so passionate, you're going to be so taken over by your passions that your mind and your will are not going to be able to function. You will be a slave. Whatever creature Satan is offering you, for your homage. So Satan inflames your passions for the thrills of gambling, for the sensuality of sex, for the effects of alcohol, for the hallucinations of drugs. And once you come into the power of one of these creatures, your soul is practically dead. It's made comfortably numb, such that you are hardly able to make any more choices. You become like a zombie in this life. And slowly and peacefully slide into the clutches of Satan and into hell itself. And it's really the purpose of this sermon to make you clear about this. So you just understand intellectually what the two sides are about. There's a book on the devil, really wonderful book that uh, Father Novak gave me, in fact, um, where this Father Van, he says the following Unless we really appreciate the horror of Satan's yoke, we can never have a proper understanding of the deliverance that came to us through Christ. Unless you understand the slavery of sin, you'll be very complacent in slipping into it and slipping into addictive behavior. So that's the call of Satan. And meanwhile, the call of our Lord is follow me when we look at our Lord and he's got this cross on our shoulder and we're like, okay, Lord, and what do I have to do? He's like, well, you know, here's your cross. It's a lot smaller than mine, by the way, but here's your cross and you've got to carry that on your shoulder and just follow me. And you're like, Lord, where are we going? He's like, well, we're going over there on that hill where we're going to be crucified. And when he says that to us, our passions become very cold and dead. We're not emotionally moved by this invitation of our Lord. On the contrary, we have no time in our life. And we, our, our mind would be so clear and our, our will would be so clear about what we're getting into. Then upon this frankness of our Lord, this is what you're getting into in following me. Do you want it? Do you want to follow me? Well, if this is the two sides, we may ask ourselves, why is it that so many people end up following the path of Satan? Why do so many people prefer slavery to freedom? If following the devil is a path of total subjection of yourself, when you become a zombie, why do so many people like it? When, when following the path of our Lord is the path of true freedom, why is it that the path of heaven is not broad? 
Wouldn't we expect the path to heaven would be broad if that's true freedom and the path to hell would be narrow? But that's not the case. We know that's not the case. Why? Why is that? Well, it's simply this. We do not like difficulty. We do not like things that demand a lot of us. And the path of our Lord is more difficult. The path of Satan is free and easy, whereas the path of our Lord costs sacrifice from us. And so we end up preferring the path of easy slavery to difficult freedom. How do people become addicted to things? Well, it can happen in one of two ways. First of all, a person can be in a, an emotional state that causes them suffering. Perhaps they're sad, they're bored, they're lonely, they're tired, and their nature is calling out for some sort of compensation. They want something back for their state. They say, this is not fair. I don't want to be in this state. And above all, they want to take control of their emotional state. We know that we don't have a lot of control over our emotions. We can't switch them on and off. And when we're sad, we, we want to have power over our emotional state. So what do they do? They have recourse to something that will overwhelm their emotional state, put them in a different emotional state through some creature, some overwhelming creature, some, some sort of intoxicating pleasure. They take the plunge into some thrill, some overwhelming pleasure that floods their emotions and makes them in a different mood. That's the first way. The second way is for people who are not unhappy. They're happy, there's nothing wrong, but they have a bad friend. And the friend says to them, hey, check out what I've got. Hey, have you ever done this? Why? Hey, look at this, look at this, let's view this. Or let's try this. These are things that I do. Why don't you join me in this? And the person is, is not perhaps... Um, subject to any depression. But once they follow their bad friend, they quickly become addicted to whatever it is their friend is into. It's clear that doing something once does not make for an addiction. But the greater the intensity with which someone indulges in the pleasures and the thrills, the greater dependence they will have upon those thrills. Say someone goes to do some gambling, first-time gambling, and they start winning. By the force of the devil, they have beginner's luck. I've heard stories about this. Man goes, a true story, man goes to, to Vegas, he's gambling for the first time, he's playing roulette, and it just every single time, he gets his number. He's making, raking in money, money, money. He just stays there for hours, he keeps winning. He wins over $50,000 his first visit to the casino. And he's hooked. He's so hooked by that intense thrill. What does he do the next day? Of course, he goes back. He goes back. And he loses it at all. He's, he's just gambling, gambling for hours, and he loses it. All, all of the money that he won. So the path to addiction can be very quick and very steep, steep if someone binges to an incredible degree. If someone just plunges, takes a deep dive 
into those pleasures that excite that dopamine in your brain. And you, you have this emotional thrill. And then later on, there's a physical change in you at that time. And then later on, first of all, the first reaction after you do that is you're kind of disgusted with yourself. You're just like, what have I been doing? Why did, why did I get into that? I can't believe that I did that. But then later on, you, you have this incredible urge, this strong craving to do it again, to go back to that, that vomit that, that, that you had indulged in before. Um, it's, a, it's, it's like what they call dope sickness. You know, when, when people are on opioids, um, they're addicted to these drugs, and they, they get off them for a while. But then suddenly, they have this very, very powerful urge to have these drugs, and they just go crazy. They'll do anything to get those drugs in their system, again, just to, to satisfy that intense craving of their brain. So what happens over time, depending on the level of dependence that you've created in yourself for some creature, whether it be gambling or pornography or alcohol or drugs, depending on the level of, of that dependence, when you enter into an emotional state that's unsavory, you're sad, you're lonely, you're bored, you're depressed, you're tired, you immediately go to fix is the drug. Your, your chosen um, master, whatever it is that's enslaving you, you, you go to that and you have uh, a binge on that thing and you're free from that emotional state once more. And over time, it, it happens that slowly but surely you're unable to deal with those emotional states at all without having recourse to that addictive thing. There's, there's nothing left for you. With even just a little bit of sadness or loneliness, you go immediately to avenge on the creature you worship to take control of your state and drive that state away. And because when this happens over time, the eyes of the intellect start to become blind, the will becomes very feeble, one of the first things that can go is your Catholic faith. I've seen it so many times where you, you hear that someone leaves the faith and usually they give some sort of, you know, intellectual reason. They say like, oh, I, I, I can't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture anymore or I, there's all these scandals in the church or what have you. But later on, you found that they've been immersing themselves in some sort of addictive thing, um, whether it be sexual pleasures or whether it be drugs, what have you. And this is just as much true of priests as it is for the lay faithful, perhaps even more true. You hear about, it's very sad, you hear about priests leaving the priesthood. They've, they've a lot of pressure on the priests. They, they start to seek for, for these comforts, these, these natural consolations that are sinful. They, they start binging. And then over time, they are unable to keep up a supernatural vocation. They leave the priesthood. Let's face it. The faith is no longer going to make sense for people who become very carnal. They're immersed in things of the flesh. The things of the spirit are going to seem very far, remote, and incomprehensible. So what can be done when someone has become an addict? What can be done when someone is completely powerless 
to resist their urge to gamble, to drink alcohol, to view pornography, whatever it is. There's many things that could be said, but, but I'll just mention three. First of all is the necessity to remove the occasion of sin. The person who is under an addiction is in such a state that whenever they're in the presence of the thing, the creature that they worship, it's almost impossible for them to resist. The only way they're going to say no is if they can't have access to that thing that they're enslaved to. And for this, they're going to need the help of someone else. They're not going to be able to rely upon their own strength to remove the occasion of sin. They'll always find a way to get that back. So they need someone else to help them. It's like, please help me make sure that I cannot have access to my alcohol, to my internet, to, to my gambling tokens, whatever it is. Secondly, it's so important that we recognize that we have to bear the cross in this life. We have to be able to deal with our difficult emotional states and moods without having recourse to something that's going to make us an addict, without having recourse to addictive sins or any sin. We have to find some other remedy for our difficult emotional state, our sadness, our loneliness, whatever it be. I don't care. I mean, as long as it's legitimate, even if it's a legitimate pleasure, a decent movie, a decent book, visiting with friends, going out to eat with your friends, spending time with family, I don't care what it is. You must find something else to deal with that difficult emotional state than these very pleasure-seeking, thrill-seeking activities. Thirdly and above all, we need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reason why he came down on this earth, to set you free from the slavery to sin, to set you free from your lower nature so that your higher self, your true self, can direct your whole life. This is what St. Paul points out in that same epistle. He says, I see another law on my members, fighting against the law of my mind and captivating me in the law of sin that is in my body. Unhappy man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? The grace of God by our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God will set you free. You must have recourse to that grace of God. So, my dear faithful, make full use of your Catholic faith to deal with the difficulties of this life when you are sad, when you have um, loneliness, some tragedy strikes you, boredom, whatever it may be. First of all, have recourse to our Lord. Call upon our Lord when times are difficult, when you're in one of those emotional states. You must pray for the strength to endure, to persevere without falling into sin, without binging. Secondly, we need not just to pray to our Lord, but to receive our Lord in the most blessed sacrament. He is the food of the strong. In order to overcome the flesh, we need the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the spiritual food. That the more you consume it, the more spiritual you become. And so the more able you are to freely reject the enticements of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then lastly, we must have recourse to the most blessed Virgin Mary, that handmaid of God 
who followed the will of God in absolutely everything, who endured really, really terrible sufferings, far more than anything you will have to endure, she endured. But she was always faithful to God in the midst of those sufferings. She, too, will give us a very great strength if we just have recourse to her. We definitely don't want to be slaves to our animal nature in this life. We do not want to be slaves of the devil. We want to freely choose the path of following our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully on the way of the cross so we can gain that true victory. Victory over ourselves, over our lower nature, victory over Satan, and even victory over death itself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.